No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. You know, I, I've always been impressed with that intro. Oh, yeah. You did a really good job on that. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it, it reminds me, one of the things it reminds me of is there's a Frank Zappa song called Cheapness that is sort of about 1950s science fiction films and about the attack of a giant poodle that the military decides they have to use nuclear force to stop. And it's got that same kind of... Scared military tone of voice. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to recall that. Do you know what the uh, what the clip is that the radio is playing in the background? No, what is it? It's not War of the Worlds. It stuff. is it's, War of the Worlds. Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that, it is. It that, is taken from War of the Worlds. That, that would have been my guess. Yeah. Speaking of War of the Worlds and Orson Welles, since it did come up uh, on Netflix recently, there is now a documentary called "The Love Me When I'm Dead." which is about uh, Orson Welles uh, and his attempt to make a film called The Other Side of the Wind, which is technically speaking more or less his last film. Hmm. And also the film showed up um, on Netflix, too. I haven't watched the film yet. I'm about two thirds of the way through the documentary. Um, and, you know, uh, if you're I, if you're an Orson Welles fan or not, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who will remain nameless. And I mentioned all this. And this person said to me, yeah, I can't take Orson Welles because it always seems to be about him, <laughs> which is really funny. So the film, the premise of The Other Side of the Wind is it's about the last day in the life of a film director who's making a film and. And a film is being made about him at the same time. And Wells was trying to he, – he shot for about two years with it, – it's kind of funny. If you think about doing all the reaction shots first. Right. <laughs> so he was doing all these reaction shots and he hadn't cast – or decided what to do with the person who was going to play the film director. And he eventually settles on John Huston, who's another famous film director, and they were very good friends and everything like that. And so it's just kind of like, and it, there wasn't really a script they were working from. It was just this attempt to try to do spontaneous filmmaking. And it's kind of framed as a response to art film, you know, to, and it was being shot in the 70s. And, you know, sort of, sort of this, all this art film movement stuff. But it's just fascinating for these things to show up now. And yeah. I'll, I'll report back when I've seen the other side of the wind as to whether it holds together. It was uh, eventually finished by Peter Bogdanovich, who promised Orson Welles before he died that he would finish the film. I feel like Orson Welles would be a huge social media superstar if he was. Ab oh, absolutely. You know, like, like I, I just, I wish you could, you could place him within the realm of the technology we have today as the medium and just see what he would have done. Yeah, he was, I mean, cause he, he did a slam dunk on theater and radio and film and you know arguably not although not a slam dunk he did kind of have some fun with magic yeah. <laughs> and tv commercials and acting uh because of course what he did was he would go act and take that money and turn it around to finance some of his filmmaking um yeah no it'd be i think it'd be really interesting to see how he would you know essentially turn you know what the way social media works kind of right. on itself right yeah you know? He'd, he'd be social media's Banksy. <laughs> that would be great. 
They'd be good collaborators, I think. Oh yeah, wouldn't they? I think that would be that would be fantastic. Although you know, they they are. I mean, what what the friend of mine said was absolutely true. Orson Welles was all about Orson Welles, right? And Banksy is all about like being erased, you right. know. So, but 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 in some ways, it's. I mean, the story is really about Banksy, right? Because it's all part part of it's about the the lack of knowing exactly who or what Banksy is, right? Yeah, and so it draws a lot of attention to the artist. The, there, there is, by the way, if you dig online, you can find. Um, you, you can actually get uh, a, a, a graphic that you can drop into things where you can take any picture and put it in and it'll shred. Oh, cool. It's, it's really cool. So my daughter had put a picture of herself on her website and I grabbed it and put it in the shredding frame. So you click on it and it's the picture of her and it shreds to about two thirds of the way through. <laughs> I just I love the ingenuity of people in the digital sphere. They're yeah. they're much kinder to me than I deserve. Yeah. So. Well, unfortunately, uh, we have skipped a few weeks, and so we're on to our next holiday already. Last time we talked about Halloween, and and we're now here at Thanksgiving. We are. Yes. We are at Thanksgiving. What's your uh, plans this week? My my plans are to have a slightly non-traditional dinner with some friends. We're going to cook. We've actually, the last couple of years, or over the last few years, have gone to a German restaurant in Oklahoma City. That's cool. Because it was so easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like no prep, no cleanup, and you could just kind of come home and sit in front of the TV and, you know, what, what about you? What's your plans? We're, we're hosting, which I just found out about last week. <laughs> And, uh, and you're hosting everybody, everybody, e- everybody. You're oh. welcome to come. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we have to host a couple of people. Yeah. So, yeah. But where are you? You're doing the traditional everything, like turkey and all that. I imagine so. Uh, you I, sound like yeah. you're, you're told at the last minute what's going to happen. We're here. all told. Uh, <laughs> it just it it turns out our house is the venue. Will, you know, the food will be coming. Uh-huh. Kind of deal. Um, yeah. But we're, we're we're the host, which is great. I mean, I I. I have to say, um, I'm going to sound like a, a Thanksgiving Scrooge, but it's my least favorite <laughs> holiday, um, you know, and I've talked about my favorite holidays and most of it revolves around the type of food in which we, I get to consume. I love hamburgers and hot dogs, which is why 4th of July is my favorite. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, traditional Thanksgiving food's not really, uh, the thing that I get super excited for. So yeah, Thanksgiving is a weird media holiday too, Yeah, because it becomes, uh, football, yeah. Right. And parades and, and um, Black Friday and Black Friday. Yeah. yeah. I found out today that uh, at least one of the, the businesses trying to survive in these difficult brick and mortar retail times is actually starting their Black Friday sale on Thursday at 2 p.m. Yeah. Well, so I uh, so for my intro to ad class, I did a bunch of content on Black Friday uh-huh. last week um, just to talk about it. I mean, it's the largest consumer holiday there is. And, um, you know, I did my research on sort of, you know, when are the best days to find deals. And, um, you know, the, the the big thesis is the best day to shop is not Black Friday. There are some things, but to the traditional idea of, you know, getting up and going to a brick and mortar store and getting a really good deal, your best deals, you know, are one going to likely be online first of all right. and going to likely be a day other than Black Friday and what we've seen over time is just that it just keeps getting moved up and up and up I even got an email from a retailer this week that's like we're protesting Black Black Friday <laughs> by starting our sales today and it's right. like no 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 <laughs> you're not protesting it by doing it today yeah. um, but you know from from uh, from my research I should pull up my, my lecture to, to figure this out but um, the best day to buy toys 
is on uh, on Thanksgiving. Uh-huh. Uh, the best day to buy uh, holiday decor because that's a big sale that happens as your you know the rest of the holiday decor gets goes on sale uh, for the rest of the the season and that's usually like November twenty second for whatever reason that's huh. the day that most of that goes on sale so so there are days in which you can get it really the only the best deal that you can find on a Black Friday is doing electronic or appliance shopping online on yeah. Black Friday that's really the only good deals uh, that you're gonna find everything else you know is, is is uh, just normal normal deals you'd probably be able to get at most times yeah, of the, the year. The last time, I'm, I'm also a little bit of a fan of the, you know, the, the sort of do not buy, do not shop on Black Friday because there are a couple of organizations that are kind of, you know, anti-consumer organizations that think the whole thing is kind of a, you know, a, a little bit of a joke. And so they um, they kind of encourage people to not buy anything at all as a protest on, on Black Friday, uh, which, you know, has never reached really kind of a critical mass, unfortunately. The last time that I tried to actually do something that would have involved getting in the car with somebody I cared about and going to a store on Black Friday was uh, was 16 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and we went to a Best Buy, and by the time we got there, which was like 10 minutes after the store opened, the entire lot was full, and people had parked on all of the islands that you know where the trees right. and stuff are so it was just like all we did was laugh and turn around wasn't and go that kind of cool like, <sighs> i kind of i mean i don't know it maybe it's still like that but i do remember it wasn't quite i mean it might have been yeah it was i mean probably the last time i did something like that was about 14 15 years ago and i also remember going to a best buy and the line being so long to check out that you literally went into the back you know of the <laughs> of the store where they would keep stuff and then they were projecting a christmas story like on the wall you know in the area where they stored the boxes yeah. so you could just like stand and watch a movie which I, mean, I don't know there was something interesting at least we were like socializing as human beings right like you know we we're at least going out and seeing other people that had blood running through them and oxygen <laughs> coming out uh, com- yeah. they were, they're consuming oxygen or, or blood so, running out if they happen to be at the yeah. at that Walmart when the doors open sure. and the, the crunch um, but there are, there are other things like the uh, small business Saturday you know which if, if you if you refuse to do Black Friday maybe Small Business Saturday is your deal. Um, or again, I don't know why, why we have Cyber Monday because Amazon has started their sales at the beginning of November and their sales are called Countdown to Black Friday. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's insane, but there are, there are alternatives for all of those. Luckily, we've got the majority of our holiday shopping out of the way already. So we were well wow. prepared. Yeah, and you... that's mostly because um, as a, you know, as someone who works for the state, I only get paid once a month. And so that December check's got to last a long time. <laughs> you know? Well, I have a relative who I won't specify, but uh, o- over more time than not, this person has been uh, frantically running around on December 24th looking ah. to do their have, shopping. So I have a fun fact about December 24th. Okay. On on December twenty fourth, this is this this fact's a little bit out of date, but two point five million gift cards are purchased on that day from where? You wanna guess? Uh, Starbucks. Starbucks, you got uh, it. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. They sell two point five million gift cards the day before yeah. Christmas. Well, you can. I mean, it's 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 sort of like a universal. You know, in in our household, they actually end up being 
often given to students, you know, mine yeah, or my wife's right. or somebody the, the else. The other fact that I saw is that, uh, and again, I think this was a 2014 fact, so this is looking at holidays 2013, but one in seven Americans will receive a Starbucks gift card during the holiday <laughs> season. Isn't that crazy? I wonder how many of them are actually like, like are never used. Like yeah. They just disappear you know i think what's what's more fascinating is because the gift card of starbucks turns into their loyalty card right right and so you can use it you can put it on the app you can turn it into sort of trying to become a gold status member you can use it for mobile ordering all that kind of stuff it's the gift card sort of the the entryway into the larger uh starbucks loyalty program which i think is (laughs) is quite fascinating so that's kind of amazing it's, it's an amazing business model. The, the, look, before we go too far past Thanksgiving, because we will we'll do a Christmas show no, separately. Th- this is exactly why I want to go as fast as <laughs> Thanksgiving as possible. No, I think yeah, no, I think we, I think we, I think we'll need to treat Christmas and and the other holiday, the other part of the holiday season on its own. I just you know I moved the 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 thing out of the way so I wouldn't hit that. So now I'm hitting the microphone. There's too much gesturing going. All right. Anyway, so um, so I was going to just recommend if if uh, if one. Is is interested in such things that there was a in 2016 uh, Marie Arvin I'm sorry uh, Male Arvin uh, in Truth Out published a piece uh, uh, the future is indigenous decolonizing Thanksgiving and you know for um, I, I think it's very important to to think about what the consequences of Thanksgiving are for the Native American population uh, there are many people who feel like one of the most important things that you can do is at least recognize you know the 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 tribal land that you happen to be sitting on yeah. and saying you know uh they often advocate and i agree with this advocation that that you can often say by the way just to say we are on occupied land so the studio that we are speaking on in is occupied land and and uh best i've been able although oklahoma is an interesting case because right. of the way that um became sort of forced occupied right land. uh but technically um there are 39 tribes that identify as as um having a stake in in land in oklahoma or having a uh, a presence and Muscogee Creek is probably the the tribe that is closest to, particularly we're here on the south uh, south of Oklahoma City, um, as being the group that identifies um, as as the you know the the people whose land was was occupied. Um, so anyway, the, the the frame of the article, which I think is is quite interesting, is to talk about settler colonialism. Are you familiar with that term? Have you heard that term before? I've heard it. Uh, I don't consider myself a scholar. So she, what she, uh, I think, I believe it's a she. The uh, our, uh, presents is that settler. This is the definition. Settler colonialism is the social, political, and economic system that Europeans brought with them to the North American continent that turns land into profit, dispossessing Native people from the land through forced removals, military massacres, genocide, sterilization, and forced assimilation, among other tactics. Indigenous people have long recognized that this is an ongoing process, not one discreetly contained within a historical period. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the uh, ideas about this, and you know, you sort of think about all the representations of Thanksgiving, is they have this historical fixedness, right? And often Native American populations are thought about in that way. They have a historical existence, uh, but they're not seen to exist in the present. Or, or the signs that we see are part of a kind of fantasy. 
version, uh, a projection of what the what what cultures are involved in. And the cultures are alive and they're vibrant, and they there is uh, you know uh, they need to be perceived. I think you know in that way, um, so that we can actually account for the history that leads up to where we are. And, uh, you know, of course, if at all possible, try to make Thanksgiving a little bit more reflexive. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just, just to sort of get people thinking about, you know, what does it mean to have that kind of a history? What does it mean economically? What does it mean socially? What does it mean culturally? And, and in media terms, what's, you know, of course, important to me is, you know, how can we do things so that we can increase the level of participation of uh, Native Americans uh, in the production of culture? Yeah. You know, the, the traditions of storytelling or the kinds of contemporary storytelling that goes on. Um, it's already happened, actually, in, in to a great extent in young adult fiction uh, and in fiction in general. There's a, a really phenomenal book called There, There by Tommy Orange that talks about Oakland and the indigenous populations that live there now and the contemporary circumstances of their lives. It's a great book. Um, and um, so there, you know, so the more attention that can be paid to that, I think the more, um, you know, the I think it's a, a more responsible way to kind of engage with all of the issues that come up when it comes to uh, Thanksgiving. And, you know, so we'll make sure that there's a link online to uh, this piece. Uh, which also has a great list of resources, including the book An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Uh, there uh, some other information, uh, tribal memoirs. You know, the, are you familiar with the, uh, the book about the Osage murders? Yes, uh, Flower of the Moon, is yes. that right? Uh, yeah, uh, The Flowering Moon um, is being made into a film. I didn't know that. And Martin Scorsese's directing it. Oh, wow. And Leonardo DiCaprio's in it. Because it's interestingly, simultaneously, a history of some really horrible stuff that was happening with the Osage tribe, but also the the place in time where the contemporary notion of the FBI was essentially built. Because they had to make a choice, do they want to be... You know, do they want to be Wild West Rangers or do they want to be suit bureaucrats? And, of course, the suit bureaucrat yeah. version won out. So it'll be interesting to see how that ends up. One uh, thing that just dawned on me, so I'm watching uh, football this weekend. Okay. And uh, the game that's being promoted for Thanksgiving Day is uh, Dallas versus Washington, which is Cowboys <laughs> versus Redskins. <laughs> like, what... What what yeah. person let that happen on Thanksgiving that we're going to have Cowboys versus Redskins? That's pre that's pretty amazing. I wasn't aware of that because I'm I've kind of tuned out professional football altogether. But that's amazing. Yeah, I don't think I would have seen an ad for it um, had I not been watching OU and Adrian Peterson's now uh -huh. running back for the for the Redskins. So he's they're being promoted on OU games. But yeah, that's a uh, that's interesting. That's right? astounding. There you go. Yeah. Well, that sort of encapsulates American Thanksgiving. And <laughs> yeah. A lot of ways yeah. Right how there. do we, you know, because we're, you know, we're simultaneously. So it's interesting because, you know, on the one hand, there's this like historical fixedness, like, like these cultures exist in the past. And at the same time, there's this really this kind of desire to be liberated from the notion of history to say, oh, well, all that was in the past. We don't do sure. that anymore. We don't really. And, you know, of course, that's the, the that, that completely ignores the consequences of having done that, you know of having uh, marginalized and, and, uh, and, you know, committed acts of genocide against a, a culture, a, a bunch of cultures. Yeah. So you want to talk about Russia? I, 
<laughs> I feel like I need to have like a little uh, music drop that like I feel like this could be a bit that we do uh, uh-huh. pretty fairly often as this news comes out. You know about about Russia. And here here's here, here's why this is interesting to me. Um, because well, it's interesting because I think this is going to become a a larger part of the discussions that we're having. Um, and a lot of it has to do with what we're what we're now getting able to see. Uh, nearly two years past the the presidential election of 2016 is we're starting to finally get the stories of sort of how uh, how how Russia built around the idea of um, you know planning for a couple of years to sort of fixate on the 2016 election. Uh, we're starting to get stories on about how social media organizations are you know reacted during the time as well, and and the the history is starting to get told. Uh, unfortunately, it's taken two years, you know, and this is real time stuff. And I think that's what's, you know, uh, alarming about it is that this is something that's been happening for a while. Um, and, and we're just now figuring about it out about it in the Western world, you know, and particularly within the United States mm-hmm. uh, and having to react to it. But, uh, there was a couple things, uh, recently that came out both by pieces of the New York times. Um, one of which was, is a video series that Adam Ellick produced, uh, that has to do, uh, it's a three part series on, uh, part of it has to do with the, the history of the, the Russian disinformation campaign, uh, talking about how, all this has been happening since the, you know, before the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, there's good info about how other countries uh, in Eastern Europe have battled disinformation that was has been spread by the Kremlin, including like nightly newscast, you know, uh, a 30-minute spot on here's what the Kremlin tried to say today and here's what's, you know, true and false. And, and it also talked about how, how planning for the, as I mentioned, the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential campaign had, had actually started in, in 2014 uh, really fascinating stuff you actually had pointed me to that to an interview that you had heard on fresh air what yeah. were your thoughts on that well the, yeah the fresh air interview I'd, I'd really strongly recommend because I think it's fascinating for for a few reasons one is that the uh, the series in the New York Times is is you know, very timely and fascinating. And um, uh, part of what happened with uh, in Adam Ellick's history was his connections with Malala. Yeah. And uh, because he was sort of there at the time when uh, when she started her activism when she was nine. I mean, she's so she has a very I mean, she started doing uh, amazing political things. So this was well before she was uh, shot by the Taliban. And um, and in fact, he in the, in the interview, it's interesting to hear him at one point talk about how, you know, because he had established a connection with Malala's father, and they were kind of deciding how to how to to deal with this because of interest in the story and everything like that. And in the interview, he talks about how they really didn't include her in the conversation because mm-hmm. she was a kid and because culturally speaking, you know, women don't participate in that kind of decision making traditionally. And so it's a little bit of a, you know, mea culpa that he makes about how she should have been included in that. I mean, that would have been a really important thing to do. But anyway, the fresh air piece is really interesting because there's that whole history. And then he talks about his own having been um, positioned as uh, being constructed in this false news um, environment where they basically took a picture of somebody who looked vaguely like him who was killed in a terrorist raid and said it was him and he was dead. Um, so he was, you know, th- this was sort of like a way of, of creating a lot of disinformation about him. The other fascinating thing in the interview is is has to do with the long game. The idea right. that 
um, that the the Russian pro- provocation starts years before it actually hits the ground. So uh, he talks in the interview about um, the, the the mythological story. This is this is this would be a false story that uh, AIDS was created by the CIA to kill African Americans, and he traces that to the Russian implantation of a story about that in an Indian newspaper, sort of several years before it actually hits the American mainstream. And then it hits, and then of course it, and you know it, it's it's uh, you know it's still something that my guess is you wouldn't have to throw a rock very far to find somebody who still believes it. Um, but you know, but the, this whole process of this kind of long game of sowing disinformation and thinking about how it's going to get distributed, which at that point, so this is pre-internet, also, right? So it's being distributed through mainstream media. Which is also kind of amazing. Now it's so dead easy; it's it's terrifying, you know, to get the stuff to be distributed. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. No, I thought that was really interesting. Um, I think one of the other parts that he brought up about the CIA story was about how uh, academics was also involved in it, and somewhere between the story getting published in the Indian newspaper and Dan Rather actually, you know, talking about it on the newscast and, you know, pointing out that Dan Rather didn't say that this is true, but really rather, Dan Rather pointed out that uh, that it was being circulated. But in between that, I, I believe it was a German academic couple that that was that was convinced to sort of write about it as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah that's, and that's kind of, there's a, uh, there's a piece kind of connected to that idea that actually appeared uh you know we're we're uh we're taping this on uh, November 19th and it appeared this morning in the Atlantic by Derek Thompson and the title of the piece is Trump's lies are a virus and news organizations are the host and he has a way of thinking about this that has to do with this kind of parasitic relationship between you know sort of the spread of disinformation and the news media as kind of the vector for distribution and you know it raises i think the interesting question of you know how should the how, how should the news media how should the information media address these things present these things in a way that um actually uh is able to stop the spread of disinformation Right. So how you choose to phrase something becomes very important. He talks, uh, Derek Thompson talks about um, uh, Axios um, and uh, when Trump incorrectly described the GOP health bill as covering pre-existing conditions, Politico simply declared, and this was a quote from Politico, Trump guarantees coverage for people with pre-existing conditions and health care bill. That was accurate, but it was not the whole story because, of course, the whole story is that that was false. Uh, when Trump falsely took credit for Ford moving a plant from Kentucky to Mexico, ABC and ABC News reported, quote, Donald Trump takes credit for keeping a Kentucky Ford plant from moving to Mexico. When Trump claimed without evidence that millions of people voted illegally in the 2016 election, CBS News tweeted, Donald Trump, quote, millions voted illegally for Hillary Clinton. The problem being that, you know, how do you express the nature of this and also identify at the same time that it's false. Yeah. And that's that's, that's kind of the, the challenge that's being right. faced. And it's tricky um, to go back to Thanksgiving. Um, you know, I, it's hard. You can't draw, I mean, although maybe Mueller will, draw a direct line between the strategy of Putin and President Trump, who seems to be more closer to, you know, your drunk uncle at Thanksgiving 
spewing whatever comes out of his mouth rather than being very strategic about it with Putin, you know? And those, it, it's two different stories. And I think people, I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone's giving Donald Trump too much credit, uh, f- you know, for this, for it being a very strategic thing. It's just more of a microphone gets put in front of him and uh, he has so little of a filter that he will just answer, you know, and, and do it as as convincingly as he possibly can, uh, which is very, very different than sort of the, the, the seeding information over a long period of time with a very methodical strategy that I think, you know, the, the, the Russian government does. So, mm-hmm. so just to, just to clarify about those like two situations that seem to be distinct, although I, I, I am seeing more mainstream media that is using the word lies, which is something that it seemed like people were very delicate and didn't want to say President Trump was lying. Right. I don't know if it was because uh, there was just a reverence for the office in which they didn't want to say, you know, this is a lie or call it that, you know, because maybe a, uh, m- maybe there's some kind of strength within the word lie that makes it sound like, you know, it was it was on purpose and, and we don't want to, you know, we don't want to go as far as to say that quite yet. But, um, you know, I, I'm seeing Seeing that more pop up, where it's like, no, that is a lie. That's yeah. not. That's not true. Uh, yeah, and calling there, it out a little bit closer. I think there's the yeah. There's a sense in that the, the the term lie incorporates an assumption about intent, and that's what people were trying to stay away from. So you know, sort of stating something without evidence has become one way of trying to get around that. Um, the, and, and interestingly, that the the one of the articles that um, was actually a piece of uh, research that then an article in Science Magazine recently referred to, um, which actually was from um, the spring um, was uh, called the spread of true and false news online and what this was were some researchers who were basically investigating how uh, and they choose to stay away from the term fake news because they think the term false news is a little bit more precise because again fake news implies intent and false news just identifies the the category and basically what they uh, concluded They investigated differential diffusion, this is what they write in the abstract, of all the verified true and false news stories distributed on Twitter from 2006 to 2017. The data, uh, 126,000 stories tweeted by 3 million people more than 4.5 million times. They classified news as true or false using information from six independent fact-checking organizations that exhibited 95 to 98% agreement on the classifications. Falsehood diffused significantly farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in all categories of information. And the effects were more pronounced for false political news than for false news about terrorism, national disasters, science, urban legends, or financial information. They found that false news was more novel than true news, which suggests that people were more likely to share novel information, whereas false stories inspired fear, disgust, and surprise in replies. True stories inspired anticipation, sadness, joy, and trust. And they conclude the abstract, contrary to conventional wisdom, robots accelerated the spread of true and false news at the same rate, implying that false news spreads more than the truth because humans, not robots, are more likely to spread it. That's so that was, yeah, so that was there, and it's a really interesting read, although, you know, it, it of course, eventually descends into um, um, a lot of statistical information that's, you know, exactly the kind of 
um, support that supports a, an argument that you're making, but that people don't really have time for. They just want to know, you know, cut to the chase what it is. Yeah. Um, and that's what the science article kind of did a, a, a summary of that. But we'll, we'll include links to both of those because I think it's really, if you're going to make yourself read through a piece of social science, this is really a worthwhile piece um, just because it, you know, and of course it really doesn't diagnose, you know, it talks about some of the effects as people would report them, but the, you know, the question becomes why, right? Why do, why why do people do that? Why, if you talk to someone um, about fact-checking organizations, you know, that they, you know, and, and sometimes you'll hear the automatic, oh, Snopes has a liberal bias, right? That kind of a response. But when you start seeing agreement between a number of different fact-checking organizations, you know, and it, then, then it becomes a question of what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the existence of those organizations? So. Yeah. Well, speaking of the spread of misinformation online, I wanted to point to another New York Times article uh, that came out uh, about a week ago. It's called Delay, Deny, and Deflect, How Facebook's Leaders Fought Through Crisis. Uh, and it is a long-term de- investigation that New York Times had been doing uh, in, in conjunction with uh, some anonymous employees at Facebook uh, and talking about sort of what it was like to be working at Facebook, both pre- uh, and post the election uh, as Facebook, you know, quickly, very quickly, I'd say within a week was re- receiving a lot of heavy criticism um, for some of the, some of the ways in which, um, you know, misinformation had been spread around Facebook through various pages that, it, that were controlled uh, by Russian uh, operatives, as well as advertising that had been bought by them as well. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to follow the thread of, you know, uh, we have, we, we can't see anything to, a few hundred ads were bought, you know, to um, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, you know, saw these ads. I mean, and just every time that Facebook would come up with more information, uh, most of which was was, you know, forced by, uh, you know, by government investigations. Uh, but what's interesting about the piece itself, uh, one, it's interesting to see the perspective of Facebook employees who are, you know, clearly, clearly concerned about what's happening with inside the country or the company, at least a, a select few who are willing to talk uh, off the record to the New York Times. But part of Part of what's interesting is just how little uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, you know, the two arguably most prominent leaders of the the, the Facebook, whether shareholder or otherwise, um, how little they were sort of and how apathetic they were towards the idea of it before the election itself. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but Mark Zuckerberg went on this nationwide tour where he stopped in every state and was trying to, you know, understand the country a little bit more, which is really interesting, like PR, like, is he, you know, apparently he's, he's, planning on running for elected office at some point. I think we, we call that a listening tour, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he called it, a listening <laughs> tour. Uh, Cheryl Sandberg had her lean-in book that had come out in 2013, and, you know, she was still continuing to tour as a speaker on that. Um, but when they were having these discussions sort of early on, they seemed uh, to be fairly disengaged from those conversations as well. Uh, but, of course, you know, grew incredibly invisibly frustrated uh, towards employees as, as mounting criticism grew within it as well and you know sort of as you would imagine inside of the co- the company uh, lots of fights within conference rooms and arguing and stuff like that as well uh, and then I think a major part of the the, the piece that came out was that the, that Facebook had actually hired uh, a, a, a Washington DC based consulting firm called definers public affairs this is the part of the story I love yeah yeah <laughs> to sort of 
of go on the offense and and and, and seed uh, opposition research on on Facebook critics, uh, which is which is really interesting. Uh, and as it turns out, who's behind it? Who? George Soros. Uh, George Soros once again. And there's nothing anti-Semitic. It's just that's what he does, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and it and it just came out yesterday. Uh, so New York Times wrote a follow-up piece because, as you would imagine, uh, Mark Zuckerberg sort of called a, a company-wide meeting after this investigative piece come out to to do as 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 we've seen done with a lot of these lately is you know it's it's mostly patently false and you know I'm incredibly frustrated about this. And but he also talked about you know. Uh, they, they, the employees asked him about leaks to the media, you know, and he talked about how you know there was there was real, real opportunity for punishment if if, if things were leaked to the media. Of course, this whole conversation is leaked to the media, and, and we're now reading about it, you know, as he as he holds this video conference. So um, it's you know it's, it's it's amazing to see inside of that company. Um, you know, and and uh, and I guess what what Facebook has become and what it's represented for our country. Yeah, I think, and I think that it's very difficult to think about or talk about. You know, how are you? How does one feel about one's participation in Facebook? Sure. Because I think that there is such a desire for connection that's really, I think, important because I think we all feel, you know, somewhat distanced by the amount of technology we're using constantly. And the idea, even if we're doing it through technology, but the idea of, of, of you know, human connections, I think there are these fascinating things that happen sometimes on Facebook where somebody that I grew up with is talking to somebody that I taught in high school, is talking to somebody who I've had a couple of years ago here at uh, as a university student, and just, you know, seeing them interact with each other is kind of this amazing thing. Um, and at the same time, you know, one has to examine one's complicity in, in participating in uh, a system because we do it for our own reasons. And, you know, how, how much do we acknowledge and understand why Facebook is doing what it's doing? You know what's what's its purposes, right? And as you mentioned, and you know, the article that you cited, you know, humans have to take partial blame for this, right? Mm-hmm. You you can't just blame the algorithms, you can't just blame the platform. Like you have to understand that that that, that there's a human side of this as well that's to blame, and it's it's not it's not necessarily one thing. And the elimination of one thing, say for instance, the elimination of the platform of Facebook, is going to solve the problems that we're seeing that were happening on Facebook itself, because that's not necessarily the the, the 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 most direct clear cut answer to right. it right yeah in a way I mean it's kind of reminiscent in a lot of ways of the sort of like as one develops media literacy historically and you start thinking about the fact that news organizations are usually they're almost always private and they're almost always profit driven and so and and of course that doesn't become part of their content so it's something you sort of have to remind yourself of but then sort of in the back of your head you're kind of going ah they're kind of being deceitful you know they're not being sure. honest about what they are and I don't you know I mean I think that's kind of a mischaracterization as long as we want to keep so much of it private or semi-public in the case of like ProPublica or something like that and understand what the motivations are, but then get that big picture of, you know, what's the service they provide? Because there was a an integrity to the service that existed, you know, in the from the beginning of, of broadcast news up until it started becoming incredibly fragmented in the digital era in the in the 90s. Uh, arguably, you know, CNN had had a run in the 80s of doing something completely new, but the fragmentation really takes root in the 90s. And then, you know, the question of what 
do these, you know, what purpose do these organizations serve and what effect do they have on the culture? Which, of course, we never get around to understanding completely before they get reinvented, you know, into some other version of them. And is, to the extent that there are so many people who, when you ask them, where do you get your news from? They say, you know, Facebook, you know. Right. So, um, so whether, you know, and, and although my smart alchemy response is they're not a news organization, that misses the point that people think it's a news organization, yeah. right? People think it's a source for news. So, you know, so how do we, how do we have a, a good, solid, big cultural picture of it and at the same time be critical of it when it does things like opposition research and, and anti-Semitic blaming yeah, <laughs> and that sort of thing. Yeah, I have an interesting view on that because, I, I mean, I do consider Facebook to be a media company, you know, um, at its at its heart and its core. It serves content and it's primarily, um, you know, uh, its primary source of revenue is advertising. So it, it is a media company, but then that raises questions of, of, you know, how should you regulate it? Like, you know, should you regulate it in the same way that the, the media company? companies may or may not be regulated and how do you how do you treat me, uh, Facebook differently at least from a, a federal level if you think of it as a media company itself right yeah or even thinking about you know it's sort of like thinking about what are the regulatory mechanisms that should affect something like Google if they right you know if they're if they're controlling basically online searching right because they have upwards of what 95% of all the search algorithms that happen online yeah um, right, and and I think I think the the we're not a media company ends up being a cop out for Facebook who who kind of gets to say well we don't make the content therefore we you know we have no skin in the game as as to what is seen by you know people but I don't see I don't see Facebook any much different than I see sort of early versions of BuzzFeed or Huffington Post which were you know aggregators of other content themselves and a and a hub for it and and both of which have gone on to create their own you know independent content and and Facebook has has sort of steered away from that but um you know I, I still think that there there has to be some kind of question of um thinking about you know what is what is seen and and, and uh, to what degree facebook has to take some blame for it yeah as well. but in something you pointed out before though i mean we all have to take responsibility for our yeah. part in all that too yep. right um you know how much do we allow do we perpetuate it through our own economic and attention driven activities you know in the same way yeah so, well, cool. Good stuff. I have I have one final note that's right. actually kind of a positive note <laughs> that I'd like to, to drop in, uh, which is some news out of Texas that the State Board of Education has reversed its decision to remove Hillary Clinton and Helen Keller from the curriculum. I didn't they know had, they, they had decided they, had they were going to, to remove them. Uh, they had a 10-hour uh, meeting. The State Board of Education also reversed course and reinstated Helen Keller, the Texas Women Air Force Service Pilots, back into the Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills. So, the, And this was the result of a lot of information they were being given. And they have also decided to identify slavery as the central cause for the Civil War. <laughs> So, see, see, you call this good news. I, this is good. This is this, this is good like, news because it's sort this of like kind of stuff makes my blood boil. Yeah, but it, but it's like pulling it. It's 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 like pulling things back in a slightly more positive yeah. direction, and it means that people talked about and thought about these issues, realizing what the ramifications were of the decisions that they're making. Um, you know, it's, it's incredibly offensive when these state boards of education decide that they want to, you know, fabricate a version of history that suits. 
you know, their own political purposes one way or the other. And and none of these things are simple. I mean, talking about Helen Keller is incredibly complicated yeah. for lots of different reasons. Um, she was a pro-eugenicist, but she was also a socialist. And there's the whole kind of the miracle worker storyline that, that's part of it. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, I mean, I think what they're maybe recognizing, hopefully, is that teachers are professionals and will be able to... Um, make these things something that'll um, encourage students to think critically about what they learn about these pieces of history, and um, that's a good thing, I think. I agree. So I'm encouraged. Maybe we should start advocating to make sure that media in the end of the world uh, becomes a part of history <laughs> post-apocalypse. I, I think so, because I think, yeah, I, I think, yeah. Let's make sure no one cuts us off. It should. I, I, I think it would be wrong. I think I think we have to fight for our survival in the end times. No, that's a bad joke to make because it's a reality for way too many subjects that do get you know taken away from history. But we'll let it be. Yes. All right. Thanks. Thanks again, Ralph. Thank you. Um, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Likewise. See ya. 